it's always a pleasure to stand up here and open up God's Word. It's also a great privilege, and it's also a, uh, a moment of trembling anytime you crack open this holy word and you preach the excellencies of this holy God. Amen? Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to try my best with the help of the Holy Spirit to do just that. We are continuing in our Hebrews series. How many of y'all have enjoyed Hebrews? Two of you? Come on. <laughs> We're in chapter 7 this morning, and uh, that means there's 13 chapters in Hebrews, so we are halfway through. So we, uh, we like to preach through books of the Bible here at Mac as our uh, normal, ordinary diet. We will take some uh, pause breaks and do uh, some series on various topics, but we still try to take a text and expound it uh, at its length and um, try to give you God's word as it is written, whether it's through the chapter-by-chapter chapter way or taking a various topic and unpacking uh, what a text says about it in an expositional manner. Well, enough of that uh, seminary talk and all that stuff. <laughs> we, uh, we were pounded uh, in seminary in certain ways, and uh, Pastor Leon and I, we were laughing this week. We, uh, we want to get a lot of that out of our system. <laughs> but um, let me begin with this. I love books. Uh, I love all kinds of books, but there are some particular books that I keep really close to me in my study. Uh, these books are so important, I, I like to keep them in arm's, rank, uh, uh, in arm's uh, reach because it never fails. Every week, uh, as a pastor, uh, my primary uh, ministry, Pastor Leon and I, is the Word of God and prayer. So we'll be in a text, maybe devotionally or something we're teaching on, and we always come across a word that puzzles us. It's a word that, uh, you know, uh, whatever text you're in, you come to it. This is God's word, so there is no perfect preacher. And so uh, if you follow me, uh, there's no perfect studier of God's word. And so uh, the problem is uh, you, you get puzzled when you don't know that word because in order to understand the entirety of a text you got to understand uh, every word in the text, right? And how those words relate to each other. And so here's where a reference book comes in handy. I might reach for my Greek or Hebrew dictionary, and I, I begin to uh, go through that and, and look, uh, uh, try to understand this word, and, and it never fails. This word will always leave, uh, lead you to a, a whole new world of meaning. And you want to take that the best you can and run that insight back to your text that you're studying. And as you read that text, now that insight floods light onto the meaning of this text. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the author of Hebrews is going to do a similar thing in chapter 7. He's going to reach across, if you can track with me, to his reference book. In this case, he needs his Bible. Because sometimes there's only one place something is said. And there's nowhere else you can find on the shelves of history or literature uh, uh, a word uh, that is in a text. 
Sometimes it's that way with the God's word. And it was in particular for the author of Hebrews when he came across this word, Melchizedek. Look at your neighbor and say, Melchizedek. Who the heck is that? <laughs> We're going to get excited about Melchizedek today, okay, family? And I hope when you leave today, Melchizedek uh, shows you more about Jesus. Because here's the thing. The author comes across this word Melchizedek, and he's got to unpack this word because he knows that this word is so theologically charged that, that for him, uh, helping us, his readers, understand uh, this word is of great value because like fireworks lighting up a night sky, Melchizedek shows us the extraordinary value of Jesus's high priesthood. Jesus, our eternal high priest. You see, Melchizedek points us to him. And so the big idea of, 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 of this message is this. It'll be on the screen for you. Behold, or I could say, open your eyes, family, because Jesus' priesthood is on a whole nother level. Jesus' priesthood is off the chains. Jesus' priesthood is off the rails. Jesus' priesthood is on a whole nother level. That's what we're going to talk about today. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles or your smart devices to Hebrews chapter 7. James, I'm still getting an echo for some reason. Uh, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 28. 1 through 28 of Hebrews chapter 7. When you get there, say, I'm there, Pastor. All right, all right, a lot of y'all. Cool. I'm going to read our text. We'll pray and then we'll dive in. Amen? Starting with verse 1. Uh, actually, I'll start with verse 19 of chapter 6 and on down into chapter 7 all the way to verse 28. Starting with verse 19, chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who is Melchizedek? The author would say, I'm glad you asked. Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people 
that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Keep that in mind. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you, quoting Psalm 110 verse 4, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made priest forever. This is the word of God. And uh, before we consider it, let's pray. Father, your word is, is living and active, 
sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. You use it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. God, would you do that right now? Even in my own heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, all right. I feel like I could just land the plane after reading that text. <laughs> but there's so much confusing stuff in there. We need to, we need to delve in, right? By the way, uh, my voice sounds a lot worse than I am. I'm totally healthy, so don't fear. Uh, I am uh, just trying to recover. My voice is still not back, and so pray for me that God keeps my voice right now, and he gives it back to me soon, okay? Well, enough of that. I want to show us three questions, uh, the answers to which are all found here in our text, and have the, the ability to behold Jesus, this Jesus whose priesthood is on a whole nother level. So let's uh, not waste any time. Let's go ahead and start by looking at the first question. Why all the fuss about Melchizedek? And we see that in verses 1 through 10. Uh, these, these verses will be on the screen uh, as I go. But uh, why all the fuss about Melchizedek? Well, the author wants you to know, you and I to know, uh, that, that, that our understanding of Jesus' high priesthood ministry is, is incomplete without a proper understanding of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. So like any good Bible teacher, he, he turns our attention back to the only other place besides Psalm 110, that we see Melchizedek, and, uh, and that is Genesis 14. So why all the fuss about Melchizedek? Well, because first of all, notice who Melchizedek was. Uh, in verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, the author takes our attention back to Genesis 14. And uh, we see Abraham, he's returning from this, this battle that he's just won that God had given him victory in. And uh, he, he comes back from this battle over some wicked kings, and he's greeted mysteriously by this, this cat named Melchizedek, who, who we're told is a, a priest of the Most High God, the God of Abraham, and a king. The king of righteousness and the king of peace. And so Abraham... Who is, who is in the presence of this great figure, has to be trembling. Uh, he has to be a little bit startled. Because never before this had he seen such a great figure. And we know, he, 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 and we know that, that Abraham uh, uh, had great honor for Melchizedek because as soon as Abraham uh, sees Melchizedek, Melchizedek speaks a word of blessing over Abraham, confirming to Abraham, Abraham, uh, uh, I'm priest of the Most High God. Uh, your God, the God you serve, has given you victory. And so Abraham can do nothing else in the presence of this great figure than reach in his bag and give him a tenth of everything. 
a tenth of everything that he had accumulated. You see, back then when you beat, uh, when, when one gang beat another gang up, you took all their stuff. And so Abraham had all of, all of the, the uh, they call it spoil from this battle. And so picture him. He goes to the ATM machine and he hands Melchizedek a million dollars. That's how honorable Melchizedek was to Abraham. But if you're anything like me, you need a bridge built into our world because we just don't have anything like this, right? Picture this, family. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the, the joys of mine growing up was getting to grow up in Chicago around the era of the 1990s Bulls with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And MJ was my guy. You know, I rocked the Jays for my basketball games. I never wore them out on the pavement because I didn't want to, like, slide around, you know. You know where you lick your hand and you, you get it on the thing and you hear that, that's when you know you're ready to hoop, right? <laughs> and so there I was, uh, uh, growing up in Chicago, Michael Jordan fan. Uh, everywhere you go, you see MJ on billboards and in commercials. He even had a restaurant in Chicago. But you know, just like uh, uh, it happens with all of us, you know, you 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 see something for a long time, you you become familiar with it, and eventually I became desensitized to MJ. But now imagine this: imagine a little ten-year-old boy who he wants to play in the NBA, and the kid is dope already at basketball. He's already got the height. He's already got the dribbles. And so he's over at Pingree Park working on his, his free throw and his fadeaway jumper, which was the patented MJ move. And uh, all of a sudden, a stretch limousine Hummer pulls up. And, uh, and out walks none other than 1990s Michael Jordan, okay? Not the one you see on interviews right now, okay? You know? drinking a little whiskey and stuff. No, I'm talking about the MJ of the 1990s. He gets out, he's in full Bulls gear, he's got his Space Jam J's on, and he comes over to the, uh, to the court right as this little boy drains a shot, and he says, great shot, can you pass the rock? And this kid is startled in the presence of MJ, and you know, all he could do was, of course, pass the rock to MJ, right? and they begin to shoot hoops together. Brothers and sisters, Abraham met the MJ of his day. And he was so blown away that he passed him a tenth of everything. Do you hear me, family? That's who Melchizedek was to Abraham. He was a priest of the Most High God and the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace is what his name meant. So the first reason for all the fuss about Melchizedek is that he was the MJ of his day, a, a great king and priest of the Most High God, but that's not all. The author takes it a step further. Notice the second reason for all his fuss about Melchizedek. What is it? It's because Melchizedek is an absolute mystery. Uh, take your eyes to verse 3. In verse 3, 
the author tells us that there's no record in history of Melchizedek's parents, his genealogy, that would be his family tree, his birth certificate, or his death certificate. Now, Mac family, that's strange. That's like some NCIS type stuff, all right? Uh, it's hard to even grasp um, uh, 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 or, or make a connection between this mystery man and someone today, but allow me to make an attempt. Imagine a detective doing some detective work. He, this is a big-time detective, okay, and he gets called in uh, to, the, to do this big case on a, on a missing um, important suspect, that may or may not be linked to a crime, but there's a key to knowing who this suspect is. Uh, there's a whole lot of weight wrapped up in, 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 in finding out a little bit more about this person. So the detective gathers his team and begins to do the, the, the detective work of trying to figure out who this person is that they have little to no information about. And uh, imagine that after 72 hours of, of McDonald's and, and, and bloodshot eyes and, and, and no sleep, they come away with nothing. In fact, it's worse than when they started because they discover that there is not a single trace of this person's existence. Brothers and sisters, that's something of what we have here with Melchizedek. He's so mysterious. We don't know his mama. We don't know his daddy. We don't know his granddad. We don't know uh, his auntie. We don't know his uncle. We don't know his birth certificate. We don't know if the guy ever even died. You see, the author wants to take us to the end of ourselves with Melchizedek. But why? Why does he draw such attention to this mystery? And you don't have to go far. If you look again in verse 3, he tells us, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but watch this now, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You say, well, how does he resemble God? Well, think about how Melchizedek comes on the scene. He enters right into Abraham's story as priest of the Most High God. But the question is, where did he get his priesthood from? Uh, more to the point, did he, get, did he get his priesthood from his family? Did he inherit it? Like what we know about other priests who inherited their priesthood from the tribe of Levi or specifically from Aaron? But that's the point. This lack of historical data pertaining to his parents and his family tree is to tell us that Melchizedek's priesthood did not depend on him being born into a priestly family because he got his priesthood directly from God himself. 
And brothers and sisters, this prepares us for what the author tells us about Jesus in verses 12 through 16. And what is that? Well, like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood also did not depend upon him being born into a priestly family. Get this, Jesus was born into the line of Judah, not Levi. Because like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood did not depend upon him being born into a priestly family. He got his priesthood from God, his father. But it gets even more. The absence of data pertaining to Melchizedek's birth and his death leaves us clueless as to when his priesthood began and when it concluded. But that's the point. This lack of historical data about Melchizedek is telling us that his priesthood never stopped. It still continues because the lack of historical data leaves us clueless as to when his priesthood began and when it ended. How do you do that if you don't have a birth or a death certificate on someone? You've got no information about their lives. But you see, Melchizedek's lack of important history about his birth and his death is meant once again to take us to the end of ourselves, showing us that Melchizedek had a permanent priesthood. And there's someone else who has a permanent priesthood. His name is Jesus, verse 16 says. And like the Energizer bunny, Jesus' priesthood just keeps on going. Not because we don't know facts about someone's life, and so therefore we're left to be pondering, well, is this guy still alive? Like we do with Melchizedek. Make no bones about it. Jesus always lives. Jesus always lives. So why all this fuss about Melchizedek? Because, brothers and sisters, this great mysterious figure is a custom model that God built in history to point your eyes of trust and hope to the greater Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus did not inherit his priesthood from an imperfect family like every other priest did. Oh, no. Jesus got his priesthood by God the Father, his Father. And brothers and sisters, in case you're wondering if you can rely upon this priesthood, oh, yes, you can, because Jesus happens to be the most reliable bridge that can connect you and I to a holy God who we otherwise wouldn't be able to even come in his presence. You see, because we are in the robes of Jesus' righteousness, we can be before the throne of a dazzlingly holy God. Amen? So, I came to tell you today that Jesus' priesthood is on a whole nother level. I stopped by because I wanted to share with you, Gary, that Jesus' priesthood is off the chains. That you may, you may not be sleeping upon Jesus' priesthood enough, Tasha. Amen? 
You better, you better make Kyle jealous. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to Jesus, babe. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Just want to make sure you're awake, saints. So we make such a fuss about Melchizedek because, well, he's a great mysterious priestly king who God designed as a permanent model in history to point us forward to the better Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. But the author of Hebrews still has more fuss to make. He's a fussy dude. He takes what he has just said about Melchizedek, double clicks on it, and in verses 4 through 10, he gives us another reason for his fuss. Here it is. We don't have time to delve into it in great detail. But in verses 4 through 10, the author of Hebrews argues that Melchizedek's priesthood came first in history and has always been greater than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood that came later. And since we know that Melchizedek's priesthood serves as a permanent model to Jesus' eternal priesthood, the author is directing you and I to conclude that Jesus himself, the Melchizedek-type high priest, is superior to the Old Testament Levitical priesthood with all the, te the temple and all the bloody sacrifices. And what are the results? Well, on the one hand, like Netflix, put blockbuster video out of service, Jesus, follow me now, has put the temple and the Old Testament Levitical priesthood with all its bloody sacrifices out of service. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus arrived, the lights of the temple went out. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus arrived, there was no more bleeding animals because the ultimate lamb had arrived. You see, on the other hand, if that priesthood is done, then this means Jesus' priesthood has arrived, and that means for me and you, we have an eternal high priest named Jesus, who we can put our complete confidence and trust in for our eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I get a little geeked up about Jesus being our high priest. And I wanted to tell someone today that he's on a whole nother level. He blows the doors off the sanctuary when he comes in. So brothers and sisters, we fuss about Melchizedek because Melchizedek is God's custom model, right? Pointing us in the direction of the greater Melchizedek high priest who secures our salvation for all of eternity. In case you're wondering, if you know Jesus and he is your once and for all sacrifice for your sins, then make no bones about it. You are eternally secure because no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And by the way, Jesus, who is equal to the Father, says, no one can snatch me. No one can snatch you out of my hand either. Because the Father and Jesus are like this. Amen? Jesus' priesthood is on a whole nother level. So maybe that we could call the headier of my three 
questions. I want to bring you to the second one now. What makes Jesus's Melchizedek type priesthood so powerful? We see this in verses 11 through 19. Now, brothers and sisters, there's some things I really enjoy in life. Y'all enjoy some things about life? Do y'all have some joys in life? Okay, I'm just making sure I'm, I'm not alone here. I've got some things I enjoy. And if there's one I really enjoy, it's sitting in the barber chair. You know, just sitting there and, and, and I hear that, you know, and I'm just getting a fresh chop. It's nothing better. We say that in Memphis. Pastor said, no one says that here. I say that because I came from Memphis. And in Memphis, when you went to the barber shop, you didn't come out with a haircut. You came out with a fresh chop. That's what you came out with. You see, I love going to the barber shop. And, and if there's one thing I learned over the years, it's, it's this. There's good barbers and there's dope barbers. You see, a good barber is able to provide you with a good haircut. Right, Carlton? <laughs> I, I ain't picking on him. I just make eye contact with him. He know, right, you know, don't listen to these folks, okay? Brother, come on, come on. You got the salt and pepper going on. You good, you good. So there's also dope barbers. A dope barber will provide you with a dope cut, a fresh chop. I prefer, personally, a dope barber. I like to come out the shop, and you know, like every guy does that. Don't lie, right? You pull that visor down when you get in the car, and you looking crispy than a mug, right? You feeling good, right? Wifey greets you at the door, right? Right, sweetie? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I got a baby. I'm, I'm busy. Brothers and sisters, why do, I, why do I share this with you? Well, because in a very similar way, uh, the author of Hebrews makes this type of distinction in verses 11 through 19. Essentially, he says, the Old Testament Levitical priesthood with all the bloody animal sacrifices was like a good barber that provided a good haircut. But friends, the Melchizedek-type priesthood of Jesus, on the other hand, is like the dopest barber ever. Because metaphorically speaking, he has provided us with an eternally dope salvation. You see, when you get, metaphorically speaking, spiritually chopped up by Jesus, you never need a cut again. You crispy than a mug forever. Right, her? You're, you're, like, you're like starch on jeans, right, with the iron, Right? You could cut your finger on it. Herb didn't know I knew about that. The young bucks, they don't know nothing about that, right? So, friends, look with me at verse 11 and notice how the author captures what I just said with this word perfection that he uses. He says there in verse 11, Now, if perfection, verse 11, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And then drop down to verse 28, we see the word again. 
it's kind of the controller of this whole passage. For the law appoints men, this is verse 28, in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made, watch this now, perfect forever. Look at your neighbor and say, perfection. No, I said perfection. (laughs) It's this perfection that makes the Melchizedek-type priesthood of Jesus so dope. You see, follow me now. If barbers, a barber's clippers are the heart and lungs of his whole operation, then brothers and sisters, perfection is the heart and lungs of Jesus' whole priesthood operation. Uh, You could take this word perfection and translate it like this, completeness. And, And I love how one Bible teacher put it. He said, completeness is what you get when everything has been put in place for the final great purpose to be achieved. But maybe you're like, okay, I need that unpacked a little bit more. I got you. Consider uh, this word perfection, completeness, uh, from the world of wedding planning. Y'all know how crazy uh, uh, a, groom's, a groom and, uh, and the bride can get over wedding planning season, right? <laughs> right, Tasha? <laughs> uh, it could, I'm not picking on you today, am I? <laughs> it could get a little crazy during wedding planning season because you got to do all all the all the all the planning that goes into it in what feels like a short amount of time you got to you got to you got to find the venue right for the reception you got to find the church you got to find the, the right uh, pastor or maybe uh, in, in your lane it's a priest uh, you got to find um, uh, the, the right drinks the right food you gotta, you gotta find uh, the the groomsman's uh, suit, the groomsman's uh, 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 their 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 uh, the groomsman's uh, whatever you call it, all his guys. You gotta find their suits, right? And then you gotta then you gotta find the bride's dress. You gotta find the bridesmaid's dresses. I mean, on and on and on it goes. There's bit by bit by bit by bit. You gotta work it all through. You gotta press it on down. You gotta you gotta practice everything, right? That's not counting the worship service. Because I see a wedding as a worship service. So you gotta find uh, what hymns are we doing, you know? What gospel numbers are we doing? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like who's who's officiating the wedding? And on and on and on it goes, right? Because All of that is important. It all goes into it because every aspect of the wedding is planned out and worked through. Why? In order to make the big day perfect. To make it complete. Well, brothers and sisters, in an even greater way, God has been working ever since humankind's rebellion in the garden to bring about his final great purpose which is nothing less than the perfection of his entire creation, people and the physical creation. And here's what the author of Hebrews is laboring in verses 11 through 19 to teach us. It would have been really easy for an Israelite to assume that the the way they would share in the great plan of God was by being a part of the community that focused its entire life on the temple and relied upon all of the 
bloody sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests. You see, somehow the Israelites believed that the creator God intended to work through the Levitical priesthood to first perfect Israel and then through Israel perfect the wider world. But not only was the Levitical priesthood incapable of bringing such a thing about as this perfection, it was never God's intention to begin with. It's not what God intended. You see, God intended the Old Testament Levitical priesthood to be a necessary but temporary and preparatory system pointing forward to the better priesthood of Jesus Christ through which God intended to bring about this final plan of perfection. You see, having died on the cross for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead, and remember my last sermon, passed through the heavens and went not into a man-made temple, uh, not into the inner chamber of a man-made temple, no, He passed through the heavens and went right into the very heart of God where he offered his blood to the Father himself. And you say, well, what has he been doing there ever since? By his very presence, the crucified and resurrected Christ is continuing to make effective his once and for all sacrifice for your sins. So what's the result for you and me? Legally, covenantally, before God, that makes you and I, cleansed by the blood of Christ, perfect in the Father's sight. That means we are set apart as holy. That means if we were a painting, we would take the Father's breath away. We're so beautiful. Uh, uh, We're so flawless so guiltless before the Father, so pure, so uncontaminated, that, wow, it's as if we're like Jesus himself, and that's exactly the point. Because when Jesus represents you before the Father, the Father looks upon you as his very son and daughter because you rest in Jesus' place. So when, he, when the Father pulls out Uh, uh, the manila folder and he begins to look at the record of your life he says wow that was a cool healing there you did that was cool when you 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 healed uh that person and that person and you cleansed the leper and you say well i've never done that before i i lost power did i i've never done that before you're right jesus did it in your place and you got all the credit for it Because Jesus lived the perfect life. You could never live. Are you trying to save yourself? You can't. Jesus' performance on your behalf alone. That's it. From his perfect life, even to the point of his death on the cross, Philippians 2 says, his death was his ultimate form of obedience to the Father. And guess what? He did it in your place. And you receive it how? By your performance? I just got to work really hard. Just got to read my Bible. Got to go to church. Got to do all these things. No. By simple faith in Christ. 
Because faith, picture faith is like a conduit through which the finished work of Christ comes to you. You see, that's why in verse 19, the author can say, Jesus is the better hope through which we have been granted 24-hour access and welcome into the Father's loving presence. You see, Mac, what are you relying on right now for your eternal perfection? What did you come in here maybe trusting in? to make you just a little bit better. You see, for the original readers of Hebrews, many of them were turning back to this old system of worship in the temple that they always knew because it was comfortable, because it's what they've always known. But Jesus already turned the lights on. I mean, off, sorry. He turned the lights off. He put it into the sacrifices. So they were doing something redundant, pointless. And before we point fingers, you and I do the same thing. It just may not be taking an animal to a a sanctuary to have it slaughtered. But there is no salvation without the shedding of the blood of Christ. So the question is, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? to make you eternally perfect before God. I think you and I would be surprised to know that there's many things that we lean our trust and hope in and that disappoint us. And, you know, Hebrews has a a little catch uh, 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 phrase that he uses, uh, the author uses uh, for these types of things. He calls them dead works. Why are they dead? because they're powerless to perfect you. You see, let me just name some of them. Let me name some of these dead works that we participate in, even I, the preacher. Uh, maybe, maybe the first one I, I'll say is religiosity. There's many ways we can see our religiosity, but let me highlight one in particular. Uh, think about your posture whenever you sin. What's your posture like? Is your focus, your primary focus, on how hard you, re- you confess and repent your sins? Uh, is, it, is it focused on how long you spend in, in, the, in the prayer closet repenting? Uh, is it focused on uh, uh, how often you're in confession and repenting? I'm not hammering, repenting. Confession and repentance is key. It's the start of the Christian life, and it's the rhythm of the Christian life. Because we're always having to go back to the Father and say, oh, I need the blood again. I need the blood of Christ, right? But here's the thing. When your repentance and confession becomes your main focus, such that the only time you really talk to God is when you sin, then brothers and sisters... You're not trusting in the blood of Christ for your perfection. You're trusting in your performance. You're trusting in your goody-two-shoes repentance. You're trusting in your ability to say just the right thing to the Father. Oh, okay, I'm good. I'm good. No, friends. The blood of Christ alone perfects us. Now, 
and for all eternity. So is it religiosity for you? I, I don't know. I leave that for you to take up with the Father. But another one is money. If money is the last thing on your mind before you go to bed at night, and it's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning, whatever social class you are in, whether middle, upper class, or lower, or working class, if money is your preoccupation when you go to bed at night and when you wake up in the morning, then friends, to some degree, even if it's just a little bit, you're not resting in Christ for your perfection. You're resting in your money or your desire for it. You see, money can also be one that can be a dead work. But how about family? This one is, you say, family? How can family be a dead work? Because you see, family, uh, it, 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 let's say your primary focus was on raising good children, uh, raising really good, well-behaved, well-mannered children, well-educated, the whole nine. That's not wrong. But notice I said when that becomes your primary focus. Or maybe your primary focus is, is, is taking care of a family member that has a physical or mental health condition. And your whole house is dominated by it. Or maybe your whole household is dominated by uh, uh, your four walls, your three or four children, your husband and wife, to the point where you don't even think about your next door neighbor. And friends, whatever it is for you, Family could take the place of Jesus for your perfection, not the blood of Christ. Another one is politics. We're in a juicy season, right? Juicy. And uh, I'm not going to wax on about all the details of it, but you know. But listen up, friends. If you're helpless and hopeless, when your candidate doesn't get it, doesn't get elected, or if you're really high and mighty because they do, you're a little, little bit overconfident either, or you're a little bit too down in the dumps, or maybe that policy that you really, really think is key uh, doesn't get put in and made a law. And so you're down in the dumps, you're feeling hopeless, you're feeling helpless, or maybe you're just a little too high because it does get put forward as a law, then friends, you're not trusting in Jesus alone for your perfection. You're resting in your politician, your political party. You're resting in that policy, that if that policy would just get put in place, we would be good. But friends, it's a dead work. I'm not saying politics are not our responsibility, you better get out and vote if you're a Christian. Okay? Because we have a just God named Jesus who cares about that type of stuff. But is your focus on Him and Him alone for your eternal perfection? Or is it on the next best candidate, the next best policy? It'll never perfect you. It'll always leave you drained. Another one is media. 
I'm taking more time to unpack these because I don't want this to just be an academic exercise where we wax on about the scriptures. They're deeply practical for us. Think about media for a second. This is my last one. Media. Uh, media is something you contain, right? You, you go to it to be informed, which is a good thing. You also can go to it to be entertained, which is also a good thing. But if you find yourself going to media, like I'm going to escape, and you get caught up in this mindless scrolling because you, you uh, uh, want to escape your problems or maybe the stress of the day. Or on the other extreme, if you go to media in order to confirm and affirm your positions and get really, really smart about them so you can go into a board meeting and slay somebody or go into a church meeting and slay somebody, or go to a city council meeting and, and just assault somebody with your knowledge of a certain stance and friends, for all of these reasons and many more, uh, you're not trusting in Jesus for your eternal perfection. You're trusting, in, you're trusting in your ability to get it just right on the topic of the day. You're trusting in your ability to uh, 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 be able to numb and, and go and escape as if God doesn't see you there. Friends, I can go on and on, but here's the thing. These are all good things. But God never intended them or anything else to be the means by which he brings about his final purpose of perfection in your life. The Father has always had one means and one means alone to declare you wholly guiltless and pure before himself. And he is none other than Jesus. None other than Jesus, whose priesthood is on a whole nother level. You see, what makes Jesus' Melchizedek-type priesthood so powerful? It's the only priesthood capable of prevent, uh, presenting us before a God who is holy, and if you aren't presented that way, you can't be in that God's presence. But in Jesus, you can. You could be holy. You could be guiltless. You could be pure because you're wrapped in him. But friends, I've got one quick one left for you. One quick question that the author just has to get off his chest as if this was not already enough. He says, you know what? I want to put you double down into Jesus. I, wanna, I want you to know that you can know he's your high priest your eternal high priest. And so he takes it a step further in the last verses. Here's the third and final question. Why can I, or why can you, be totally confident in Jesus' Melchizedek-type priesthood? Well, think about the Levitical priesthood. It was men who came from the line of Levi. These were men. That meant they were human beings. And human beings live, they serve, and they die, right? Because all human beings do that. We all have a timetable. But friends, imagine this. Imagine Pastor Leon. Okay, I've already checked with him. I, I'm allowed to do this. Imagine Pastor Leon was given the magical ability today to be our pastor at Mac Avenue for, for eternity. Like his position would never be vacant again. Imagine that. And uh, uh, imagine, well, even as I say this, Pastor Leon's cringing because 
he knows that means that you and every other generation after doesn't just have to put up with his strengths, but they also have to deal with his weaknesses. Because I, like Pastor Leon, and every other pastor we know that exists, is weak. But here's the thing the author wants to say. There is one pastor who's not only eternal, but he's perfect. And his name is Jesus, and in Psalm 110, verse 4, God make an un, uh, made an unbreakable promise, an oath about him. That he would be your eternal high priest forever, securing your salvation in the throne room of God for all of eternity. And you see, God can't lie. You see, if God made the promise, and God said, I swear I'm going to keep my promise, the oath, then brothers and sisters, what's your problem with not trusting Jesus as your high priest? Why do you keep running to those other things that can't supply you with the only perfection you need? Amen? Amen. I do it. You do it. Why? Because we're flawed. We're human beings in desperate need of a gracious God who could come down. He's so gracious and loving that he gives himself completely on Calvary's cross. He went there and he took nails in his hands and his feet. He had a crown of thorns pushed through his head. He had a spear jammed through his side. And all night long he died. But on the third day he rose victoriously, defeating sin, death, and the devil himself. And he didn't just sit in some fairy tale land. He went right into the throne room of God where he took his place before the Father. And he's there right now pleading your case. So brothers and sisters, you have a great high priest named Jesus who's on a whole nother level. And we fuss about Melchizedek because Melchizedek's whole point in life was to point to Jesus, the ultimate life giver. And friends, Jesus is so powerful that he is able to perfect you instantly, now and for all of eternity. And brothers and sisters, I don't want to leave you without telling you that your priesthood, the priest of Jesus, also rests in the unbreakable promise and oath of God. So that when you're down in the dumps and you need a great high priest, you can call upon one named Jesus who always lives to make intercession for your sins and mine. Amen? Amen. And so what else could you rely on that could complete you? Money won't. Family won't. Media won't. Politics won't religiosity won't, and any other thing you could think of won't. There's only one king, and that king happens to be also a priest, and he is totally sufficient for your and my salvation. So let's praise him. Let's praise him.